This seminar relates to the claims under the Inheritance Provision for Family and Dependents Act 1975 made by adult children, whether natural or adopted children. Uh, I should introduce myself, I'm Charles Machin, and the relevant section under the 1975 Act, as I shall call it, is Section 1, Subsection 1C of the Act, which permits children, whether natural or adopted, of a deceased person to seek reasonable financial provision for their maintenance from the deceased's net estate. The emphasis in this seminar being on adult children rather than infant or children under the age of 18. And the 1975 Act allows for applications, of course, by children under the age of 18 who are called minors and also children over the age of 18 who are in full-time education or vocational training. But we're not going to deal with that category of children, what I call the basic category, because as I said uh, a moment or two ago, we're going to focus on uh, Inheritance Act claims by adult children who, but for some specific circumstance, might have been expected by the age they've got to, to be financially independent. That is to say, children beyond early had adulthood who are still wholly or partly dependent on a deceased parent, or rather were, before the deceased parent died. First, there are adult children who, due to physical or mental disability, continue to depend financially, and maybe also for practical help and care, on their parent or parents. That is to say, children who, through physical disability or mental incapacity, or because of some traumatic accident or event, are unlikely ever to be independent of their parents. The 1975 Act applications by such children will be very likely viewed with favour, and that tends to deal with the uh, relatively easy category of uh, disabled children, whether they're disabled physically or mentally. The second category of, of, of adult children that I want to deal with uh, are adult children who are likely to struggle financially throughout their lives due to the lack of job qualifications or for emotional problems or addiction to drugs, drink, gambling or similar disadvantages. So that's the second category. Uh, sometimes they uh, receive less sympathy than the first category that I mentioned before. The third category are young adult children in their 20s who've graduated from university or vocational training, or maybe they haven't even been to university or had any vocational training, who will hopefully become, if they're not already, financially independent of their parents, but due to the economic situation, are either still unemployed or in low-paid employment. Uh, such as being a barrister, by that I mean being a B-A-R-I-S-T-A -A, rather than a B-A-R-R-I-S-T-R. -R -I, I think I've spelled the second one right, uh, having been a barrister for getting on for 50 years. 1975 applications by financially independent and secure adult children who are dissatisfied with what their deceased parent has left them are very unlikely to be viewed favourably under the 1975 Act. The mere fact of being a child of a parent who is deceased 
unless there is some special circumstance, is not a meal ticket for life. Neither will a court be inclined to disturb the express provisions of a deceased parent's will or intestacy just to provide the adult child with a better lifestyle, even if the adult child has some pressing financial needs. So that deals with the meal ticket for life kind of uh, class of claimants. Two preliminary points which I, I would like to make at the start, well very nearly the start of this talk, this seminar. Number one, references to children in the 1975 Act include adopted children as well as natural children of a deceased parent. Under the Adoption Act, section 39 subsection 2, an adopted child can claim under the 1975 Act against the estate of an adoptive parent or each adoptive parent if there are two. The adopted child being treated in law as not being the child of anyone else other than the adopter or adopters. An adopted child can claim under the 1975 Act against the estate of a deceased adoptive parent, but not against the deceased of either of their natural parents. It is not clear whether a child who in its very early years, such as for example being a, a very small child, has received financial provision from the estate of a natural parent who has died, can then, when older, make a claim against the estate of the adoptive parent if the child is subsequently adopted and that parent, that adoptive parent, later dies. Number two of the two preliminary points Section 11E of the 1975 Act entitles a person to claim under the Act if they were being maintained wholly or partly by the deceased person immediately prior to the deceased's death, but only if they did not qualify under one of the previous heading, headings in section 1, subsection 1. For example, under section 1, subsection 1C of the Act as a child of the deceased. In short, an adult child who is wholly or partly dependent on the deceased parent or adoptive parent should claim under section 1, subsection 1C as a child of the deceased rather than under section 1, subsection 1E as a dependent. Turning to the main subject of this seminar, the starting point is the wording near to the end of section 1 of the 1975 Act. To quote, that the disposition of the deceased's estate affected by his will or the law relating to intestacy or the combination of his will and that law is not such as to make reasonable financial provision for the applicant. So that is what uh, is commonly referred to as the threshold test. The words just quoted contain a threshold test that an adult child or indeed any claimant making an application under the 1975 Act, uh, whether we're speaking about a child or a de dependent or some other category of applicant, must satisfy in order for the application to succeed. That is, the claimant or the applicant has to establish that the deceased person's will and or intestacy has failed to make reasonable financial provision for the applicant. Those are the key words. The question is not whether the deceased acted reasonably in making no or insufficient provision for the claimant adult child, or whether the provisions made in the deceased's will or intestacy, or both, were reasonable 
in themselves, but whether the will or intestacy, or the combination of the two, fail to make reasonable financial provision for the applicant. It is essential to bear those words in mind and not be led astray by some inquiry as to what might have been reasonable or unreasonable behaviour by the deceased parents. The case authorities over the years have made that clear enough, but it is an easy error to make. It's easy to get confused by the two differences between whether the deceased has acted reasonably or unreasonably and whether reasonable financial provision has actually been made for the claimant in question. References to applicant or claimant. Although the Act of 1975 refers to the applicant rather than the claimant and to application under the 1975 Act rather than to a claim, a 1975 application is required by the Civil Procedure Rules, CPR as one calls it in shorthand, Part 57, Section 4, to be brought by Part 8 Claim Form. References therefore to claimant and claim under the 1975 Act therefore not out of place even if strictly not correct. To bring a 1975 Act application the claim form needs to be accompanied by a witness statement or witness statements of the claimant and any other supporting witness that may be required in the particular case. Then moving on to another procedural point, the statutory time limit. Another procedural point of general importance, Section 4 of the 1975 Act states that a 1975 Act application shall not, and this again I'm quoting, except with permission of the court, be made after the end of the period of six months from the date on which representation with respect to the estate of the deceased is first taken out. And then it continues, but nothing prevents the making of an application before such representation is taken out. The six-month time limit runs from the date of the first grant of probate or administration unless the court is willing to extend the time limit. It is advisable for an intending claimant to set up and maintain a standing search at the probate registry so as to be sure to know when a grant of probate or administration is issued. That is to say, they're not going to be caught out by the six-month time limit simply because they didn't appreciate that there had been made a grant of probate or administration. I do not propose for present purposes to consider the circumstances in which the court might extend the time limit. It is safest to assume the six-month time limit will apply and then make the intended application within that time limit. Pre-grant applications. As Section 4 says, there is nothing to prevent an application being made before the first grant of representation, probate or administration. The Civil Procedure Rules, Part 57, Rule 57.14 to Rule 57.16 is specific to the 1975 Act applications and Rule 57 Subrule 3A and 3B applies to the making of applications where no grant of administration has yet been issued. The procedure there needs to be followed if we're speaking of a pre-grant application. Turning now to look at applications by adult children, whether natural or adopted, of a deceased parent, the basic general principle is that applications by adult children will not be entertained favourably unless justified by some special circumstance, such as, as already mentioned, 
physical or mental illness or infirmity, or serious financial hardship. The difficulties in defining or recognising what, in any given case, would amount to a special circumstance. The relationship of parent and child is not of itself a special circumstance, not even if coupled with financial need on the part of the adult. Many adult children in their late 20s, 30s and beyond remain dependent to some extent on financial support from their parents or one or other of them for their reasonable needs of everyday life due to one or more of the following. Continuing dependency due to unavoidable physical or mental illness or incapacity and as said earlier they are likely to be treated with rather more favour than other adult uh, children who are applying under the 1975 Act. The second one is continuing dependency due to or made worse by drug dependence, alcohol addiction, gambling or other addiction, or lack of job qualifications, or financial incompetence, laziness, or misfortune. Another uh, category is where there's a child, the adult child, has been involved in a family breakdown, for example, divorce or uh, civil partnership breakup proceedings where the family relationship has broken down and other domestic problems that of course can leave the adult child uh, in a difficult financial situation to say the least and lastly there is the uh, general adverse economic circumstances might have left the adult child in uh, financial need the court can have regard to the degree to which the claimant may have brought about or might be expected to have done or to do something about their financial dependency, either in applying the threshold test or in deciding if that test is passed, the extent or nature of the financial provision it should award, if any. What is reasonable financial provision under section 1, subsection 2 of the 1975 Act? Before considering the relevant factors and circumstances in relation to an adult child claimant's claim, which are set out in Section 3 of the 1975 Act, it is important to consider how Section 1, Subsection 2 of the Act defines what is reasonable financial provision, especially in relation, as we are considering now, to 1975 Act applications by claimants who are adult children, uh, rather than by claimants such as surviving spouses and civil partners. What is reasonable financial provision is defined as such financial provision as it would be reasonable in all the circumstances of the case for the applicant to receive for his maintenance. The emphasis being on the words reasonable to receive for the applicant's maintenance and especially on the word maintenance. Well, that statutory definition is not particularly clear or helpful I have to say but that's what we've, we're given by the 1975 Act. Clearly what is reasonable maintenance will depend not only on the habitual i.e. over the years level of maintenance the applicant child could be expected or has enjoyed but also on the social and financial circumstances of the deceased parent. However since an applicant child's claim often depends on being in financial need whatever the reason for it, which may have lasted for years, too much cannot be made of the habitual level of maintenance that the applicant has received. That factor may well have more significance where the applicant has suffered 
a recent downturn in financial terms. Turning then to section 3 of the 1975 Act, which identifies the matters the court must have regard to in deciding, first of all, whether the deceased parent has made reasonable financial provision for the applicant, and secondly, also, if it considers that reasonable financial provision has not been made, whether and in what form uh, such financial provision should be made in favour of the claimant, i.e. how it should exercise its powers under Section 2 of the Act in favour of the applicant. Section 3 matters are listed in, in Section 3, uh, subsection 1. A. The applicant's financial resources needs present and needs present and foreseeable. B. The financial resources and needs present and foreseeable of any other applicant for financial provision under the 1975 Act. C. The financial resources and needs present and foreseeable of any beneficiary of the deceased's estate. So it's a good look at the finances, needs, resources, present and foreseeable of the applicant any other applicant who happens to uh, be claiming against the estate in question and any beneficiary of the estate. Then we move on to D, any obligations and responsibilities the deceased had towards any 1975 Act applicant or any beneficiary of the deceased's estate. E, the size and nature of the deceased's estate itself. F. Any physical or mental dis disability of any 1975 Act applicant or any beneficiary of the deceased's estate. And G. Any other matter, including the applicant's conduct and any other person's conduct that the court may consider relevant. Well, that G, uh, part G of section 3, subsection 1 of the 1975 Act is tend to be a sweeping up kind of provision that allows the court to consider almost anything else of relevance in the question of whether reasonable financial provision is being made or not, and if, if not, what provision it should make. However, in the case of an adult child of mature years, say in or between, beyond their age of 30, beyond the age of 30, without wishing to be disparaging to anyone, they might have no expectation or very limited expectation of further education or training, despite the modern concept of lifelong education and training. Under Section 3, Subsection 5 of the 1975 Act, the Court must take into account the facts known at the date of the hearing. And under Section 3, Subsection 6, in considering the financial resources of any person, it must take account of the person's earning capacity and in considering their financial needs, it must take into account their financial obligations and responsibilities. Well, that seems to be fairly common sense, really, section 3, subsection 6, which I've just mentioned. Moving then backwards, in a way, to section 2 of the 1975 Act, this particular section empowers the court to choose between a whole raft of possible forms of award, from periodical payments, lump sum payments, transfer of property, trust provisions such as a life interest in a, a, a settlement or a trust for the maintenance of the successful claimant or a mixture of those forms of award. I now come to uh, the second part of uh, my seminar uh, and this is headed case law 
on adult child applications, applications under the 1975 Act by adult children. The first case, and it's a very historic one, way back in 1980, 1980 Chancery 461 is the reference to it in the Court of Appeal, Mr Justice Oliver recognised the principle of testamentary freedom and disclaimed any right of the court to reform a deceased person's testamentary disp dispositions or dispositions on intestacy, otherwise ascribed to the deceased, save where an unreasonable outcome resulted. Financial need alone was not sufficient. Over and above the parent-child relationship itself, some sort of moral claim giving a reason why it was unreasonable not to have made the uh, greater financial provision than was in fact made for the claimant or the applicant. Mr Justice Oliver decided that there were no such moral obligation, there was no such moral obligation, but pointed to it being appropriate to where an adult child able to earn his own living where the deceased parent had died whilst the applicant child was undertaking occupational training and needed financial provision to complete it or if the adult child had been unable to make an adequate living while caring for a parent. Those are the two situations that Mr Justice Oliver uh, mooted, mentioned as being possible cases where uh, an award could be made in favour of an adult child. Lord Justice Goff in the Court of Appeal, however, held that moral obligation was not a requirement of success for an applicant under the 1975 Act. So that seemed to leave things rather up in the air. And it was 1998, in the case of Ree Hancock, 1998, two family law reports, 347, in the Court of Appeal, before a, a, a review took place of the decision in Ree Coventry. Sir John Knox, in the Court of Appeal, said a reason to justify the court's conclusion that there had been a failure to make reasonable financial provision for the applicant child was... Uh, the use of a phrase, special circumstance, but that does not seem to assist, and the word special means only what is needed to overcome the factors in the opposite direction. That is to say, the factors that might be argued against an applicant when seeking reasonable financial provision. Uh, again, not a great deal of light from that case, so we move on now to a, a, a number of cases in the late 1990s which mention situations appropriate to making a 1975 Act award for an adult child. Where the deceased parent has during their lifetime provided financial support, either full or partial for the claimant, and the claimant needs financial provision to make good the loss of that support for the future. That's rather a, a case where um, the deceased parent has been uh, subsidising, as it were, the adult child for a while and can't, uh, the claimant, the adult child, can't be left without that underpinning or safety net that the parent has provided. The second situation which is appropriate for an, a, a 1975 Act award is where the deceased parent promised someone other than the claimant that the claimant would benefit in some way on the parent's death and it would be unconscionable for the parent to backtrack on that promise. It's what they call the promise case category. Uh, 
There are two cases there that are mentioned. Re Good Child in 1997, one weekly reports. Uh, 126 in the Court of Appeal and Espinosa and Bork 1997 one family law report 747 again in the Court of Appeal. Three, where the deceased parent encouraged the claimant to believe that they would benefit in some way on the parent's death and the claimant has acted to their detriment in that belief for example by giving up paid employment or better paid employment to work in the family business or on the family farm. Uh, the case for that was Re Pierce in 1998, two family law reports, 705 in the Court of Appeal. Four, another situation which is appropriate for the making of a 1975 Act award for an adult child is where, regardless of any promise or encouragement the applicant child has had, uh, the child has acted to benefit the deceased and to the child's own detriment and therefore either through caring for the parent, that's Donald Land against Estate of Mary Land, deceased 2007, one weekly reports, 1009 in the Court of Appeal, or by working in the parent's business, Re Abraham, 1996, two family law reports, 379 in the Court of Appeal, in either case for little or no reward. The fifth and last uh, category where it would be appropriate normally to make a, a 1975 Act award is where, even though not incapacitated, the applicant child was in some way disadvantaged or vulnerable and consequently in need of financial support and provision. These are the dis disadvantaged cases rather than what might call the uh, physical or mental incapacity cases. In Golden Curtis in 2005, uh, Weekly Times Law Report 673, uh, the applicant suffered from continual or repeated depressive illness and uh, an award was made in the applicant's favour. And then in Myers and Myers, also in 2005, uh, Weekly Times Law Report 851, where the applicant was successful because uh, she suffered from mental fragility and an awkward personality, what one might, for example, might, might now call uh, autism or on, on the spectrum. As a general point, it is easy for an adult child to succeed in an application under the 1975 Act where they have some lifelong or long-term disabling illness or condition, hindering or preventing them from earning a living and involving significant present or future care needs that will cost significant amounts of money. Uh, and that obviously uh, puts the applicant in, in a better position from the point of view of obtaining an order, an award uh, in favour uh, of them under the 1975 Act than an adult child who is capable of earning a living for themselves. They uh, are rather at a disadvantage when applying under the 1975 Act. Now, turning to the leading case, a rather more recent case of Islet and Mitson in 2017, United Kingdom Supreme Court, number page 17. This particular case of Islet and Mitson undertook a thorough review of the case law and principles relating to claims by adult children under the 1975 Act. Uh, the facts of the case of Islet and Mitson uh, in 2017 was that the claimant 
was an only child. Her mother, under her will in 2002, left a half million pound estate to three charities and left nothing to the claimant, from whom she had been estranged for nearly 30 years. The mother's letter of wishes, which went with her will, explained her reasons. And that was the very unsatisfactory relationship she had had with her daughter, the claimant, which in summary uh, had progressed, or shall I say deteriorated as follows. The claimant left home at 17, married a man the mother strongly disapproved of. When the claimant was 23, she had a child, and there was a year-long reconciliation between mother and daughter. But after it ended, in argument, there was no further contact for another 10 years. There was then a brief reconciliation that ended in acrimony as well. The mother was 60 at the time. A few years later, the mother demanded a written apology from her daughter, and that is what the claimant gave her. That attempt at reconciliation failed rather quickly, and some three years later, the mother, that's in 2002, made her last will, leaving the claimant completely out of any inheritance. At the district judge level, the decision by the district judge, District Judge Million, surprising name, but District Judge Million, was that the claimant's application was deserved to be successful and an award for financial provision was made in the amount of £50,000. Then in the High Court, because then the charities who were disappointed by District Judge Million's decision took it to appeal, uh, the award was set aside the judge taking the view that the district judge had got it wrong because he found, so the court of appeal, the High Court thought, that the claimant's mother had behaved unreasonably in leaving nothing to her daughter, the claimant, when the question he should have been addressing was whether the mother had failed to make reasonable financial provision for her. That's the confusion between reasonable conduct by the uh, person who was deceased and whether there's been a failure to make reasonable financial provision. Seems a very slender distinction, but it's an important one. The Court of Appeal decision. The claimant, who was equally disappointed by the ruling of the High Court that, that she should get nothing, then appealed to the Court of Appeal, which held that the district judge had not made an error, as had been suggested, and decided the claimant should have an award under the 1975 Act of £143,000 to enable her to buy a home, plus £20,000 by way of income support. Well, the three charities weren't particularly happy about that, and so they took it to the Supreme Court. So we've been through the District Judges' Court, the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and now we're in the Supreme Court. The three charities appealed because they said that uh, there was justice in them having the money, this considerable amount of money that had been left to them out of the uh, late mother's uh, half million pound estate. And the end result of the Supreme Court deliberation by seven judges of the Supreme Court was to reinstate the district judge's original award. So Basically, they'd been through four courts and got back to uh, the starting point of District Judge Millions' award of £50,000. 
a lot of litigation over what might be called, I, I know it's a considerable amount to, to many people, might be called uh, a rather modest award at the end of the day. What principles can be drawn from Eilert and Mitson's case? Apart from how difficult it is to predict the outcome of adult child claims under the 1975 Act, except in the clear case of a disabled adult child supported throughout by their parent and left, due to the parent's death, in need of financial provision, at least to be able to live a, a, reasonable, uh, a reasonable life, as it were, uh, with a reasonable level of income for the future. Apart from that uh, exceptional sort of case, these are the pointers, it seems, to my mind, from the cases. That an award under the 1975 Act should be for maintenance, meeting everyday living expenses, which would not usually include the expense of, of or towards buying a home. That said, of course, one of the final outcomes of the case of Eilert and Mitson was to provide uh, the claimant with £143,000 to enable them, her to buy a, a home. The second sort of uh, point that can be made is the parent-child relationship and needy circumstances, that is to say being in serious financial need, can't of themselves be sufficient for a 1975 Act application to succeed. Thirdly, there has to be something more, the Supreme Court referred to an additional something, possibly a moral claim or an expectation, a promise or previous financial assistance from the parents. That's the additional something. The parents have led the child, the adult child, to think that they were going to receive some inheritance from the estate. Number four, that it was the, for the applicant or claimant to satisfy the court that a financial award was appropriate, if not essential, in order to provide them with reasonable financial maintenance and not for the express beneficiaries, even charities, to justify what the deceased had left them. Number five, there had to be a need to consider the impact of a financial award on the claimant's state benefits, especially means-tested benefits. But all that was said in Ireland and Mitzen was that any financial support from a 1975 Act award needed to be meaningful that is to say, of actual benefit to the claimant and not merely replacing state-funded benefits by something else, that is to say, some uh, funding from the estate, which would, of course, leave the claimant no better off if it's a case of taking away or losing the state benefits and simply having them replaced by something from the estate, some award from the estate. Uh, number six, that the statutory and case law guidance for predicting out the outcome of claims by adult children, except in uh, cases where we have a disabled adult child who's been dependent on their parents' financial support, is still vague, a conclusion not too surprising in view of the vast array of circumstances that can influence the outcome of a 1975 Act application by an adult child. Then we come to the question of what will strengthen the prospect of success of a child applicant under the 1975 Act? First of all, applicant-related factors. The adult child's serious financial hardship, present or envisaged for the future, 
unless the court is persuaded that making financial provision for the claimant would not take away that hardship at a sensible cost to the deceased's estate. Their ongoing or expected disability, physical or mental, unless the court is persuaded that practical provision for their disability can be better met without imposing uh, an award, a financial cost of an award on the deceased's estate. Impoverishment or loss of prospects of financial improvement on the part of the adult child due to their sacrifice in caring for their parents, now deceased, or some other member of the deceased's close family, such as the deceased spouse, domestic partner, or other child. The factors number two, the factors related to the deceased's estate, the size, value, and contact of the deceased's estate may make it easier for the court to put together a financial award from the claimant. This naturally begs the question, what value and form of financial award the court is prepared to make? An aspect of this seminar we will look at shortly. And the absence of beneficiaries of the deceased's estate that would make it easier for the court to find the necessary finance or funding from the estate without detrimenting any of the beneficiaries. The absence of competing beneficiaries, such as other children of the deceased, in situations similar to the claimants, that is to say, other children in need. The lack of disincentives to making the proposed award to the claimant, such as the loss that the claimant would suffer in being deprived of mean-tested benefits or local authority funding, if the proposed award was to be made, uh, which would be effectively benefits cancelling, a benefits cancelling award. Due to the time allowed by the seminar, I have not covered other sections of the 1975 Act, such as making an interim financial assistance application under Section 5, or varying periodical payments under Section 6, or obtaining lump sum instalment orders under Section 7, or the provisions governing what property is to be treated as part of the net estate under Section 8, jointly owned property Section 9, Attempts to defeat the 1975 Act altogether, that's Section 10, what they call an anti-avoidance provision, or the raft of supplemental provisions in Sections 11 to 24 of the Act. I hope, however, there's been sufficient in this seminar to provide a fair, if only in summary, understanding of the subject of 1975 Act applications by adult children of a deceased parent, whether natural children or adoptive. Thank you very much. Thank you.